1: Microphones and headphones provided by CAD Audio. CAD Audio, expression through innovation. Produced with podcasting gear from Tascam. Trust your audio to Tascam. Sound thinking.
2: to another episode of wookie radio it is the smugglers three derek ken and myself mike and joining us this week week. um he is the director producer of a documentary called disturbance in the force the making of the star wars holiday special if you remember a couple weeks back we had bruce lanch on the show who gave us his behind the scenes story we're going to get more of that story from Steve Kozak. How's everyone doing tonight?
1: Great. Well, thanks for having me thanks for having me on here. Fantastic. Oh, our
2: pleasure. Now, before we get into the um, disturbance of the force, or in the force, tell us a little bit about your background, because I know I probably butchered it some... Um, before him but you got a very interesting background
1: oh that's, that's an interesting way to put it uh, interesting um, <laughs> yeah I mean I, I I work in I've worked in very high-profile shows um, I'm in a very small niche I work uh, as rights and clearances research and clearances I basically do all the third-party content for for um, I did it for when I was at Real TV and Hard Copy. I worked at Whose Line Is It Anyway for a couple of years. I did the uh, the game uh, Green Screen, if you know that show. Yeah, before. yeah. Uh, so that was my whole job for three years was just trying to find weird footage to put in back of Colin while he's doing the news story. There was um, – and, the, <laughs> and, and, and Colin has to figure out what's in back of him, so it was <laughs> – it was either something really, really hysterical, which was harder, or something really, really disgusting, which was a lot easier, like maggots or, or yeah. uh, <laughs> lizards, or uh, uh, we had some really disgusting things. People eating insects, um, uh, yeah, yeah. superboard wipeouts, you know, just like on and on and on, like like literally like 200 wipeouts in like, you know, all crotch, you know, in the crotch. <laughs> like after each other. Um and then I worked at um, I was at Jay at the Tonight Show with Jay Leno for ten years, doing all the footage and clips for that show. Okay, uh, and then I've been at Jimmy Kimmel Live for five or six when when that ended. So, I mean, a very unique niche. Um, that sounds like it. I'm gonna say it sounds like fun. Yeah. It is fun. Really? It is fun. Yeah, it's definitely uh, um and it's helped me, you know, look at stuff and go, you know, a lot of times. I'm winding up helping a lot of other people do their projects and it's made me really push it to get into documentaries because I'm like, you know, most of these go- documentaries are not, especially the ones you see nowadays. There's so many documentaries on streaming right now where you see them all and they're it's all just like really awfully shot interviews. Right. And it's mm-hmm. all content. It's all reproduced really produced content. They just are shooting it out, they're cutting it together on on their iMovie or whatever they're doing, and and um so i have a i've got a couple of really good projects that um are moving along r- r- fairly rapidly and um and yeah one is the star wars holiday special which getting a lot of attention so
2: so what made you decide to do a documentary on the star wars holiday special
1: um well, my father was a a producer uh, He used to produce those awful Bob Hope specials um, in the 70s and 80s. You know, God love him. He was a great man. But when all is said and done and he has to go to meet his maker, he's going to have to admit, you know, well, I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't cheat on my wife. But, yeah, he produced all those stupid Brooke Shields, you know, Marie Osmond song and dance bits. I mean, just some horrific stuff. Um, I started realizing that a lot of the people that were on the holiday special, for some reason, we were doing a project with this. I have a third-party content uh, trade association called AMCUP. And we also do now a two, uh, we do for the third year in a row, this year's canceled, uh, something called Footage Fest, where it's a big, big convention, about 300 people internationally that have weird content and stuff. And and we wanted to do an event called um, like the Worst, honoring the worst television ever, the worst. And someone said, let's do the, the, the holiday special. And as we started booking it, I realized that all the people that were producing it were all the people from my dad's world. They were all variety <laughs> of TV people, which no one seemed to really understand that dynamic to it because there was no Star Wars people involved in it. Like very, very few Star Wars people were even involved in this from Lucasfilm, very, very limited. It was, you know, it's produced by Star Wars uh, for by variety show people, and this isn't just variety show people. This wasn't the people that did Barishnikov on Broadway. These are the people that did the Paul in Halloween special, and Sid and Marty Croft. and you know, this was not the, you know. <laughs> Everyone says there's this amazing list of people. There are, but then there's, in general, though, the variety television at the time was, you know, it was, it was, so it's produced, directed, and written by all the people that did the Donnie and Marie show, the Bob Hope specials, all that stuff. So, of course, it's going to look exactly like that. It's, but as I contend, um, it looks, I think it's better than that. But uh, I started realizing how many family friends I had that were members of the crew. Very, very close family friends, and I realized that they would maybe talk to me uh, when they wouldn't talk to other people. So that's kind of my my way into it. That's great. And it's really fascinating finding out, tracking down some of these people that I've tracked down from the special. Uh, I've just tracked down about a dozen people in the past week. And, um, it's just really fun. It's been
2: fun. Very cool. I, I think this may uh, be a new mission. For, awesome. This may be a new mission for us to find more people from involved with the star Wars holiday special as well.
1: Well, yeah, I have a, I have an open phone book. I'm going <laughs> to share. Ooh. Excellent.
2: We, we, we I may be using you for some resources.
1: I mean, we, I have found, so many, you know, it's funny cause my partner, um, is a guy named jeremy coon who produced uh, and edited uh, napoleon dynamite and he also did uh he's done some documentaries one he did fanboys i don't know if you know that yep. movie yes. yep oh yeah. yeah and our other producer on the project is kyle newman who you might know yeah yes.
2: from fanboys yes oh yeah so
1: yeah. um and you know jeremy's take on it is like you know i know we don't have a lot of the you know we're not going to get harrison ford we're not going to get mark hamill maybe you know who knows about the really top, top people there. There's not actually a lot of people available that, you know, Carrie Fisher's passed on, Peter Mayhew mm-hmm. has passed on, even though he had agreed to do the interview and we were on hold because he was having some surgery. Peter Mayhew actually loves the, the special, one of those rare people. Mm-hmm. But um, he's always like pushing me to like, I wanna get like all the, like the really unique little people in it that had that just, you know, like the people in the cantina. The the, uh-huh. the Wookiees that dressed up as you know in the extras and the some of the Imperial guards and stuff and so that's who we really have all those acrobats in that scene um, the 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 hologram scene in the beginning yeah. where we, <laughs> we have every single person of that there's. Oh or, wow. Uh, there's 9 people in that entire scene. We've got 8 of them. So oh, wow. That, huh. I'm very excited. That just happened. Uh I found the acro- the tumbling team uh about a couple days ago. So I'm very excited about that.
2: Oh, that's very cool. That's well, amazing. I, I know with us being named Wookie Radio, Lumpy, Grumpy and Nala would be wonderful to have on the show as well. We yeah. always welcome Wookies. <laughs> yeah,
1: and Patty, Patty Maloney is not uh, in great health. She played Lumpy. I don't know if you know that she's the, yeah. she's the midget. She um, And her, one of her, I just talked to her a couple of days. I, actually, I talked to her yesterday. And she, ironically, um, she giggled at this, but for five years she was dating Bob Denver from Gilligan's Island. Right, right. around the same time uh, of that. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and wow. there's, a, there's also another weird. i do not I mean to send you a different direction, but there's also another weird connection that we I found in the past couple of weeks. Okay, there was a uh, one of the choreographers on the on the show was a guy named David Winters, and I remember thinking, oh, that's I guess he's some old-fashioned choreographer, but I didn't really I didn't really go after him because I thought there's not much choreography. What, what I mean, what's there to that can't be an interesting interview. He probably is just there. He did something very simple. Turns out that um, David Winters is one of the leads in West Side Story. And if you remember West Side Story at all, which I'm not a huge fan of that kind of stuff, but Mm -hmm. he played A-Rab. So he's the redheaded kid. He sings a lot and he's in that whole dancing thing. And he became a very popular, very popular uh, choreographer to the point where he would like on um, Hullabaloo and some of the 60s shows, the host would always say, hey, let's have our choreographer come out and do dancing. Well, that dancer, so this is what he's I'm talking to. I'm talking to the Ringmaster. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Yes. The Ringmaster is one of the hologram people. He's the one in the crazy... Oh, right. I think he's got a green outfit or a pink outfit. He's the first one that comes out and he keeps doing all these weird things with his arms. Um, they call him the ringmaster he told me a story about being choreographed that that scene was choreographed for many many hours and I actually just found out that that scene to, produ- to, to record that scene that took at least 14 hours to shoot that so you can imagine how the budget was insane if they're spending 14 hours on that scene that is respectfully speaking extremely forgettable right mm-hmm. I mean the people doing the acrobats and you know Nothing that you haven't seen right. in the search before. So she he starts. She starts. He starts telling me about this. Um, uh, so David Winter starts. So this guy starts telling me about David Winters and how crazy he was, and he was a great influence because he was a choreographer and he was in West Side Story. And then he starts talking about his girlfriend would come in all the uh, was was would come in once or twice as a stand-in. And it's very well documented. His girlfriend at the time was Linda Lovelace. <laughs> so, oh, Linda wow. Linda Lovelace was dating him for two years right before the holiday special. And she oh, actually wow. came in to stand in for one of the people that weren't there. Wow. That's a great thing to get on tape, huh? So wow. that just learned that like a couple of weeks ago. And I love I'm a little apprehensive about it because it's like, you know, I want it to be a family documentary and how do I explain who Linda Lovelace is with without some B-roll or whatever. So I'll have to broach that when I broach it. So uh,
2: That's, anyway. that's, that's going to be interesting.
1: Uh, good luck on that one. <laughs> Yeah, the acrobats are quite um, are quite. Uh, do you want do you want to tell you this one story I just learned? This yeah, brand new thing.
2: yes, so yeah. This is
1: Every story is great. It's how, I don't know how fascinating this is, but it's a brand new one from yesterday. So when the acrobats, there was so there's if you know that scene there's there's a ringmaster. Uh-huh. I if I know this so well. Oh gosh. Uh, there's a ringmaster, there are two jugglers, uh-huh. and then there's a female uh, acrobat gymnast in this she's called the Great Zorbak is actually her technical name in the that Star Wars.com names her. Mm. And then there are five a family of five uh acrobat they're like tumblers. Right. And so the tumbler I reached the tumbler that the tumblers and I had been having problems finding the, the family because They are called the Wazon Troop, who existed in the 30s and 40s and 50s, disappeared, retired, and then basically this is their son and his group. So the the little boy that was with them in the 30s and 40s and 50s is now the senior member of the Wazon troupe in the 60s and 70s that did the special. Okay. So they're doing this scene, and they're kind of just sitting there, and there's a lot of arguing going on. And one of the producers walks over to the lead Wazon man, probably in his 50s, 60s, and says, "Um, I have to explain to you, I don't think you understand what this scene is. You're going to be shrunken, and there's going to be a, it sounds so silly, there's going to be a Wookiee, it's a kid Wookiee that's gonna be looking at you on a chessboard dancing around. I mean, it's just so bizarre. <laughs> so they're explaining and he said, and he says, he says, I got this idea from this movie called The Thief of A Thief of Baghdad. The Thief of Baghdad. And I'll show you this because I, I think this is mind blowing. I mean, this is just one of those things that I just so you can see this? Yep. Okay. So let me just show you this here. So here is the scene of when these, these little tumblers come out. Right. And Right? So you see what they do. Right. So right before that scene, right before they shot that, the producer comes over and tells him, this is what we want to do. I want you to do the tumbling because you're going to be, like, viewed. We're going to shrink you, and then you're going to be viewed by another person. I got this idea from this movie, The Thief of Baghdad. And he said there were these dancers in this music box that were miniature, and these people were looking at them. And the Wazon guy says, that's so bizarre. That was me when I was a kid. Uh, so here is this scene in this movie, and this was basically totally ripped off. Um, I'm gonna play it up so anyone can hear this. I to wind the key off. Press the So if you see this, it's the footage is sped up. But this is the Wazan troop. So the father, the oldest person that's in the Star Wars holiday special, is the youngest in this group here.
2: No Why?
1: Really bizarre. Wow. And then, and then, what I really like about it is that this stars—I can't remember this actor, but this actor who's, I'm playing here too. So if you listen to the yeah. voice, you'd recognize him as the commandant in Casablanca. Yeah, yep. I don't remember him. Can't remember his name. Very famous actor. Anyway, so I just learned that yesterday. I was oh, of- wow. That was oh wow. That's very old. cool. That, that's just like that's so obscure. That is so obscure. I, and it's and it's almost the. <laughs> My partner was like, "Yeah, that's interesting, Steve." Anyway, so <laughs>
2: and, and it's almost the same act that they did. Yeah. Yeah. With the pyramid. Yeah. Really Amazing. Cool. That That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, there you go. So um, that's just recent, as you said, this week, as or yesterday, at the time of recording, because we're recording on Wednesday the 8th. Uh, what, what are some other interesting stories out there that have, have just blown you away that you've heard?
1: Um, well, I mean, I think one of the things I've really learned the most is that, you know, I, I've um, there's a there's a great documentary on the Dana Carvey show. If you happen to see that on uh, Hulu, it's really good, called Too Funny to Fail, about his disastrous primetime show. And you know, you see. I mean, I worked on the Jay Leno show, so I know about failure. When mm-hmm. when Conan took over the Tonight Show, I worked with. I went on the Jay Leno show for a couple months and worked on that kind of nightmare. And you know, both of those shows were people were just mistakes that they made by trying to put the wrong, the wrong. Everyone was on board like that. This is a good show, I think. Uh, like Jay Leno's show less, but the Dana Carvey show totally is brilliant. And it just was the wrong network. It was too. It was like in the Home Improvement slot. It was a crazy thing to put them in a Family Hour. Um, they're way ahead of their time. And that story is amazing because they were just way ahead of their time. This are people that had no clue what was going on. There are two factions in here that it starts off with George Lucas pushing this idea of doing a story about Wookiees, which don't communicate, as Bruce Valange probably told you. They don't communicate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to, to centralize them around people that don't talk or you're not going to use subtitles. So they set up this script, and he's working with a guy named David Akamba, who he went to school with, who was a film-slash-music director, never done television, never shot with more than one camera before. And two writers, Lenny Rips and Pat Proft, who, are, um, who kind of came up with the serious, more legitimate, straightforward action-adventure part of the story. Then because the story the, the show went over over budget, CBS found a way to put more money into the show by selling another hour of it. So not just a half hour, they made it two hours. Well they'd already written the the script, so that meant they had to kind of like they had to just inflate everything. So they had to put a big dance number here, they had to put a big gag here, they got to put a gag here. So there you have all of Bruce Valanches and Ken and Mitzi Welch who were, came from the Carol Burnett show. Just adding kind of schmaltz, you know. Just injecting it in every 15-minute slot. There's just more, sh- you know, more time, you know. For, uh, I think is the only way to put it. And so the fighting between these two factions just was was horrific. I mean, there was there was there was there was actual punches thrown. There was huge shouting matches. A lot. Um, and then the first director wound up quitting before he could get fired. He shot four scenes. Um, he shot the Jefferson Starship performance. He shot the B. Arthur Cantina scene. He shot the Harvey Corman drag Julia Child bit. And then he started doing this acrobatic thing. And then uh, he used up like three quarters of the budget. Like the, he had people shooting 18 to 20 hour days. Mm. The Jefferson Starship performance was 22 hours. So a lot of it is kind of like blamed on this director because he was taking so long. But I have to say Smith & Hemian is a responsible production company at the time. And there should have been someone keeping track of the money and saying, I don't care how, where you are on this. We're not going to go into double overtime because the meal penalties and all that, you know what that is. And that's where their money went. So... Anyway, he wound up splitting and that's and therefore then Lucas ran out the back door, a combo was fired, and the two writers had already written their script. So then you basically have the Carol Burnett show people and Bruce Velange, kind of and Steve Binder, a very accomplished director, kind of putting the whole thing together afterwards. Wow. Which is where there was no, you know, in, in, in film, a, and this is what Acumbo would say uh, often, that he was shocked at how little power he had as a TV director, because a film director, what you say is gospel. Um, maybe theater is more driven by the writer, but television is driven by the producer. A director is just a tech person. He's just a tech with a really good eye. So he wasn't used to that. He wasn't used to everyone running ramp rampant over uh rim shot, running running what's that expression running
2: running rampant, right?
1: Running yeah, whatever that is. Going yeah. nuts without his permission. Mm-hmm. Um and that was uh that was kind of frustrating to him. But you know, when people ask like how did this happen? Why would why would Lucas um allow this to happen? There is a, a new revelation that I have, and I'm, I, I don't mean to over-exaggerate it by using the word revelation. It's just a Star Wars holiday special from 1978. This isn't, you know, just because I've spent a lot of time focused on it. Um, I hate to call it a revelation. Um, one of the things I'm starting to learn is that when this production started, there's a there's a stage manager who tells a story that he went into, this is kind of, Gotta put your gotta give this a little bit of love here, this this crazy thought here. He goes into the conference room at Smith Hemian, which is the production company, and he sees Lucas in there, and Smith Hemian is about to set, show them their demo reel, and he's fixing the television and everything, and then they show him the demo reel and he leaves. But he noticed that in the in the room is a gentleman named Larry Grossman. Larry Grossman was a composer and why he was in that room is questionable, but now it makes sense. So this was in probably, this meeting happened somewhere in the spring of 1978. Star Wars came out May of 77. This probably happened somewhere between February and spring of 78. Uh-huh. Well, the previous Christmas was the infamous Bing Crosby, David Bowie performance.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right.
1: That was produced by oh. Snithemi. Demi. Now, the story behind that, and, and a lot of people know this is not a new revelation, but it's just a great story, but it helps understand the context. Bowie came into the studio. They shot it in, in, in London. He came into the studio, and he said, I don't want to sing Little Drummer Boy. You guys are all aware of the song, right? Yep. The, the Little Drummer Boy. Oh, yeah. One of the most amazing moments in television history. And he wanted to, um, uh, he said, I don't want to do Little Drummer Boy. I don't want to do that. So he's there to to, to record one of his songs. I think he does, he, yeah, he does Heroes. So he goes into the other room and he starts recording that for an hour. Meanwhile, Larry Grossman, Ian Frazier, who composed the score to the Star Wars Holiday Special, and a guy named Buzz Cohen, who was a songwriter, all go downstairs and they try to tweak Little Drummer Boy. And within one hour, they came up with that song, that oh, piece wow. on edition. One hour. Now that's not something I just figured out. That's there's there's documentation about that. If you Google that, you can you can learn about that great story. But now put it in perspective. So at Christmas time, that's one of the most amazing things that happens in television. George Lucas, a couple months later, is sitting in with the producers of that show. And he's got his Star Wars brand, and he wants to trust that they're going to take good care of his Star Wars brand. They're talking to him about booking Cher, Barishnikoff, and Mickey Herman. I don't know if you guys know Mickey Mickey Herman, right? You know yep. Mickey Herman. Yep. Mm-hmm. So Mickey Herman talks a lot about how the names that they were throwing out originally were much more serious people, like Cher, not, not serious, but bigger names and more unique names to television, not Harvey Corman and, you know, the Carol Burnett group and, you know, Art Carney and all this kind of cast of regulars. They were talking that it was going to be all these big names. Well, if you see that Larry Grossman is in the meeting, who actually wound up not working on the show, there's obviously a message that they're sending, like this is the team that did the Bing Crosby special. They took care of David Bowie. Right. We know how to do rock and roll. They had done the Paul McCartney special, which is really great if you've ever seen that um, on YouTube, just a couple of years before. So that's one of the main reasons why Lucas allowed, uh, I believe, allowed uh, and had the faith originally for smith Hemingway to kind of take this on and go ahead and say, yes, you can add some music to it. Because the music is the thing that everyone wonders, like, why on earth would he approve adding music to Star Wars? Like, that's crazy. So anyway, that's my little, there's my little two cents. There's my two, my, my, my hypothesis.
2: So Lucas was then under the impression after this meeting that this was something that would potentially be canon to his franchise.
1: I, I can't imagine not because there's a lot of discussion that this was apparently going to be a, a potentially a series, a TV series. And there was a lot of talk where that rumor was going around during the shooting Obviously, that rumor got killed pretty quickly into production because obviously, then there's people that are just quoted as saying, "How do I get off this show?" kind of thing. You know, obviously, <laughs> they obviously they realized that, that this wasn't going to be the hit that they thought it was. But um, it's interesting to see Mickey Herman and uh, I can't remember the other person that was talking about all these big names and and not necessarily big names, but serious names: Barishnikov and. Um, uh, another another Russian um, performer, can't remember the other Russian performer, um, who emigrated here, um, Borishnikov And, you know, th- that's a whole different level of people right. than they wound up getting. I mean, even Starship, um, well, I'll tell you one quick thing about Starship. Uh, my fa- Okay, this is, a, this is a personal story. So my father used to produce the Bob Hope specials, and whenever he would book a band book anyone he would always try to impress me because i knew that i could get to i would probably get to go see whoever was on the show and maybe even meet them if i wanted but there was never anyone remotely that i was interested in going to go meet or see i mean sammy davis and marie osmond i you know you know you can imagine there's no none of those people had any interest for me so he tells me one night he says i i just booked uh, janet jackson I just booked LaToya Jackson on the show and said LaToya Jackson. I was like, wow, because Hope was a real big, big uh, um, hypocrite about family video, you know, family content and everything. He was always uh, he didn't want to, you know, because she had just my dad says, oh, yeah, she won all those Grammys. I said, no, dad, that was Janet Jackson, because it was right after this is like 86 when she had just won. I think after Lionel Richie swept the year before and Michael right. swept the year before. She did her Jimmy Jam, her Balpert stuff, and she swept the... the. Yep. So my dad's insisting that, no, this is the one that won all the Grammys. I said, no. And I realized he probably got a phone call from LaToya's agent because LaToya was in the news because she just posed for Penthouse. <laughs> so he probably... So he booked the wrong Jackson, and he never, <laughs> never copped. Uh-huh. They, they just all... He just acted like everything was okay and you know, no one would ask any questions. So I get back to this because I'm realizing that when at this exact same time frame, my father was one of those kind of producers who wasn't very savvy about that kind of culture. And all of a sudden, halfway into this, I've interviewed now the the lead guitarist to uh, Jefferson Starship. I've talked to him in depth. It has never even occurred to me, and this is the naivety that I have, um, that they were booked solely because of the name of their band. Like, where on earth? It never occurred to me. I mean, obviously, uh, I look at it now and I'm like, of course, that's why they were booked. They were booked for no other reason. Although there is a connection between Lucas and Starship. He actually uh, was a cameraman at the Altamont concert uh, where Gimme Shelter was produced okay his footage never is he had a problem with his camera but it was his first gig ever so he was at altamont on stage when jefferson airplane was performing there so there is oh, wow. a connection there is some connection well, not much that's very cool do you have any questions for me i feel like i've just been nonstop.
2: no this yeah. is, this has been great as soon as yeah. we come up with a question you're hitting that yeah. answer beforehand so it's awesome so, i I'm just very impressed with all the stories that you've gotten out of this. I just, this, it's going to be an amazing documentary doc- yeah, documentary. We'll
1: see. we'll see, because I, you know, there's just, uh, there are just so many bizarre reasons why people wound up doing this show and everyone had their own reason. They were all in their own m- mindset. Um, um, in fact, uh, so there's, was one story that um, this David Akamba, i so told you about this friction that was uh, good right. friction between the factions you had your tv you had your tv variety people and then you had your your film star wars people at odds with each other and uh Uh-oh. david course- Acumba, the director what'd you say
2: i was gonna say and of course you don't want to make a wookie mad <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: um
1: Actually, there's something, I have something about that too, but um, <laughs> they, um, well, one of the delays in the show was the fact that every time they wanted to use a, a, an effect like that, it all had to come from Lucasfilm. Oh, so wow. all of the grunts that the Wookiees made oh, yeah. had to be pre-produced by Ben Burt in San Francisco and then oh. had to be, they couldn't just make up their own noises. It all was... Um, very that makes spe- sense. And there's also another what's the what's the one sound that one of them have? Um, mm. can't remember. Maybe a droid maybe it was one of the it's one of the Wookiees has a really weird twitch to it. I can't remember, but Anyway, so Akumba is realizing that they're going to want it, They're going to need to add some comedy to this and whatever. So he goes down to um, goes down into Hollywood. And he watches an improv show and he's looking for some talent. And he finds this comedian who he just is in love with. He's a bottle of energy, and he brings him to the to the show. He's just doing the Star Wars thing, and he goes, "I love Star Wars." So comes into the studio, comes to the Burbank studios where the production is. And he walks up to Ken and Mitzi Welch, who are these producers who have been just kind of hired on who he thought he was basically in charge of it. and it turns out he's they're kind of over him and he's got I've got this great comedian in the he's great. He was at this improv group last night and he was really funny, and uh, they said, "We're only using name talent for this show." So he had to go back into the lobby and tell Robin Williams to go home. Oh. Oh, oh. And it, was, it was right in the time frame. He had already been on uh, Happy Days because Happy yeah. Days his Mork episode on Happy Days was in February of that year. So I think it premiered in September, Mork and Mindy. So it was oh. Oh. it was like weeks away from premiering into this, as you know, when that show went on, I mean, he was absolutely huge with yeah. it. So.
2: Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Because of was were- because they, they rushed spring of 79 to get Mark and Mindy started, didn't they, because of that? Because of what? I'm sorry. With Robin Williams, his appearance on Happy Days in seventy fall of 78 is when they rushed the order to try and get the, the Mark and Mindy series going.
1: No, what I meant was, so the dates are, he was on Happy Days, that one episode aired in February of 78. Right, and the show was premiered. I'm sorry, the Mark and Mindy show premiered that September. Oh, okay. Which is I, I'm confused. before I was the special, confused. so they're all in the midst of producing this event. He's already recorded that, probably. It's all ready to go. He also probably doesn't realize he's going to wind up being as huge as he is in, within weeks. You know that that. Yeah. No one probably realized he was ever going to be as huge as he became. Like that was such an instant success. You know. Think was the number one, show, number two show that when it premiered next to Happy Days. But, so, yeah, kind of a sad, sad. Uh, and David acumbo was very frustrated because he he, um, he didn't really have a, a just totally out of his element. And he was really trying hard. And and, uh, you know, TV variety is a very unique it's, it's 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 a very if you look at all television variety, there wasn't a lot of originality in those days. It was kind of a you had your you know, your song and dance, you had your, your comedy bits and that was pretty much it. No one did anything you know really crazy wasn't you know the holiday special was actually aired a couple weeks after the kiss meets the phantom of the park you remember that
2: yeah
1: i remember as the kid watching that and um yeah
2: same here yeah
1: now and it's it's the one the one thing i have a i have a guy named jason Lindsay who you guys should get to know who is a huge star wars fan he designs a lot of uh he has a group company called Entertainment Earth. He does. Um, oh,
0: yeah. Yeah, and Memorable does, and Collectibles.
1: Yeah, and he also does a company called B- Biff Bam Boom or something like that. Oh, and, um, okay. Or he does yeah, yeah. Well, both of those. Jimmy Fallon setups and collectibles and stuff like that. Anyway, hmm. we had this kind of revelation, and I hate to use that word revelation, but it was like it kind of changed my attitude about the whole special. Was when we were talking about it. Now, you guys are probably, are you, am I guessing you're all about 50?
2: I turn 50 next month.
1: Um, yeah, I got- uh, I, but- I'm 46, but. <laughs> Okay, if it's not public knowledge, I'm not asking you to declare this if your fans are not aware of your actual age. I don't mean to out you. Oh, no, we've we've never been afraid of our age. So we're about the same general area, and especially if you saw. So we were talking about watch our experiences with the special and everything, and we both realized, he said to me, he says, you know, I remember watching the Star Wars Holiday Special when I was a kid, and I didn't really think it was that bad. I liked it. And then I started remembering that, like, wait a minute, you know what? I think I remember watching it when I was a kid, when it was on. And I remember, like, liking it, too. And to me, that, like, is so symbolic of the whole issue. Because if you saw it when you were a kid, you had such low expectations for television. Like, television was produced Mm -hmm. in that time frame where, I mean, a Star Wars holiday special is a perfect example. You've got Jefferson Starship for the kids. You've got... Diane Carroll for the older people, you got B. Arthur for the older people, you got this, you know, everything. You never watched a variety show and had a completely perfect experience, no matter who it was. There right. was just a little bit for everyone. And the concept of seeing Harrison Ford was so insane because, you know, back in those days, you didn't have entertainment tonight or promos or, I mean, there was just, they didn't do television. They didn't, there wasn't anything vehicles for them to ever be seen you didn't even really know what they looked like and that's how i actually learned about the david bowie thing because i had said the same thing about david bowie that i didn't even remember what he sounded like because i didn't even know what he sounded like i didn't i knew i'd seen concert posters of him but he didn't it was before mtv it was before Music films. And so you really had no idea. Just the concept of seeing him, you were like, I'm satisfied. You never got a totally mind-blowing experience. Even the Bing Cosby thing when I was a kid, I didn't like because I I couldn't appreciate it. Now, Now it's amazing. But I guess the concept is, is that back in those days, it was such a low, it's such a low bar for what your expectations were in a medium that was really kind of thrown together, very unoriginal um, and one of the issues that I actually have with a lot of the, the cameramen, when I try to get them to kind of say something like, gosh, but wasn't that schlocky or wasn't that silly or the sand dance that Bob Hope does with with uh, Brooke Shields, the tap dancing bit, you know, my gosh, is so hokey. They'll say to you, I know, but, you know, with the days, I mean, I remember me, you know, shooting Frank Sinatra and Fred Astaire and... And the problem is, is that that TV variety medium medium had so many stars in it because back in those days film and television stars were all over variety TV. They were it was normal for them to appear on TV. So you these everyone was just so amazed that they were there. I can't believe Frank Sinatra is here. Whatever he wants to do. He wants to sing with Elvis, go let him sing the goofy duo with Elvis. Whatever he wants to do. So there was no, there was such a low expectation. That's why when I saw it when I was a kid, I didn't critique it. I right. was like, I guess that's the best I'm going to get. Well, um, I,
2: I think for me, because I I was eight when it came out. For me, it was it's Star Wars. We just had the film last summer. Film that changed my life. A film that changed my friend's life. As first, you know, here we are, first graders. Like now we're in second grade and we're like, We got more Star Wars. Even if it was just for on TV, right. we got more right. Star Wars. Did you see right. the stormtrooper? Did you see the one the one lady who looked like Maud tell off the <laughs> the Imperial officer? I mean, that was so cool. That's what it was for for me in in western Kentucky where I lived at the time. So, I mean, for me it was I was I wasn't as critical because it was it was Star Wars. Whereas, you know, what you're saying, I used to watch the Shazam show from CBS. Oh, all the oh, time. Yeah. And as a kid it was like, this is a great show. Oh wow. I forgot about that. Thank you for that. And I d- saw that recently. And then you watch it. Wow. I saw it not that long ago, yeah. Then I then I saw it What? uh I'll say about 12 years ago when Nick at Night or TV Land did their viewer's choice where a viewer got to pick an hour of programming and they picked an episode of Shazam featuring both Shazams. Half hour was the Shazam for season one, half hour of season two. And I'm sitting there watching this, and, and here's the elder. Now, buckle up, Billy. Got to stay safe when we travel. Okay, elder. I'm like, what did I see in oh, wow. this show? <laughs>
1: wow. Well, I mean, I, and, and, you know, I think uh, there was, since there were so few channels in those days, I mean, I don't know if, uh, if you remember this, but I remember when Six Million Dollar Man premiered. Yep. Like, that was i mean i look at it fondly because it's just kind of a cool part of my childhood like i was i was such a stupid show it was so stupid but it was just i couldn't believe it was going to be on television it sounded like the coolest thing ever yeah i think it was on Friday oh, yeah. and i watched it ever and it was so stupid i mean i i could never go back and watch a second of that stuff but um there was just something so special to such an experience that you were seeing. It was, uh, yeah, there were no, crit- it was just, you didn't have a, critique. you were just so grateful to see something up your alley that seemed, yep. you know, more Star Wars or whatever. Yep.
0: well mine was a little different Yeah, I'm only 43 so I was only like 2 or 3 when it first came out and I didn't even know it existed until almost into the, the 90s because mm-hmm. it, it played the once and it kind of disappeared into obscurity and really the sci-fi magazines and stuff really didn't talk about it much what, until I got old enough to actually see what was going on and I didn't see it until I actually tracked down a copy of it on DVD at a flea market Right, but I had heard all these stories about how terrible it is this whole time to the point where my um, Sam is used said with the expectation being low in the 70s my expectations were extremely low when that when i did see it it's much better than i expected <laughs> for, i expected this to be almost unwatchable for me the, <laughs> the way people were talking about it
2: for me watching it now the hardest Part is the first half hour where it's nothing but Wookie yeah. grunts, and you have to go based on how they overemphasize in the costumes to try to understand what they're talking about. Yeah, and then all right. of a sudden, here comes Luke in the pit. Well, Han and Chewie should be on their way. All right, now we're starting to get some more, some, some English into this. Yeah. After that half hour mark, all right. Well,
0: the all right. bad part right. is with all those Wookie grunts and having to decipher. Self. they could have used subtitles to avoid a little bit of they uncomfortableness could they could have comfortable well, stuff in there because there's no subtitles
1: you know when you i think one of the things when you watch it now as a critic if you're watching it the not even as a critic as a human being you're watching it and the first thing you feel is like gosh this is so slow like There's just such a – it's like watching like a soap opera. You know, the the, the timing of like a soap opera, how slow it is, and it's just so methodical. And and you're just – you're wondering, where is the editor? And ironically, a very, very good family friend is Steve Binder, who wound up directing it. And when I was first talking about this project, I was so nervous that he was really committed because I said, you really going to do an interview about this? Because, you know, you know, Steve, that and I didn't know how to say it, but I was like, you know, that everyone's going to like bash on you. Right. I mean, you know, this everyone just hates this thing, you know. And he's like, I'm very proud of what I did. And so that was another revelation. Like, wow, he's proud of what he did. So he's looking at it like, again, from that, I'm not the eye of the show. I'm a technician. I'm a shooter with an eye. You know, I'm not a creative person right here. I've been given a script. The first director quit. I'm in, I'm coming in there to save the situation. They were down for three weeks. They completely shut down production. He came in and he just shot what was written. And he's like, I was sh- I shot what was written. He goes, I got to meet Harrison Ford and hang out with Carrie Fisher, and and I had a great time. What's the difference um, is that he didn't edit it, and that's very very important because. When you watch it, you're thinking, I don't care who's directing this, who's producing this. Someone left this and said this is okay to air. Like that's the biggest question when you probably see it. Is like, how could someone look at that that hour and a half and go, oh, this is this is going to be on television because it's so not edited. But um, he, they didn't have any money. To, they had run out of money. That last candle scene when 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 the the Wookies are having their a big ceremony. Those were all like purchased, those candles were all purchased at like Kmart. And <laughs> they ran, they didn't have a set. It's not a set. If you look at it, it's not a set. It's a black studio. They just turned the lights down and put a bunch of candles around. That's how he afforded to do another They couldn't build another scene. They'd already spent all this money on that freaking treehouse. And then they had to tear down a wall of that because they made it a four wall treehouse. So the cameras were having problems. So. Anyway, I guess my point is, is that he didn't edit it, and that's a huge difference between most directors. And that explains a lot that this was kind of edited by people that shouldn't be editing it. It was basically one, of the, one or two producers and, uh, and, a, a very, and, a, and an editor. I mean, that's just not who should be cutting together a network two-hour special for Star Wars that's just
2: so you know. what what story were you able to find out on how they brought in the Boba Fett cartoon
1: the Boba Fett thing was Purdue was that idea came in very early um, that Lucas liked the people um, there's a project called a cosmic Christmas that David Akamba is again the director of the first director who he went to USC with Lucas knew Akamba before the Akamba had referred and recommended this company called Nelvana in Toronto mm-hmm. that did this did this cartoon called a Cosmic Pr- Christmas. And if you look at it, it's online, I think. The style is exactly the same, and that's what they were looking for, which is something a little bit more, something more unique, something fresh, you know, a new look to something. And then Lucas talked to them and told him about this story he had for the cartoon. Mm-hmm which is a story within a story. And he kind of gave the great story to them. They improvised it. They came up with the cartoon. And they were basically left to work with just Lucas's original idea and a budget, and they produced it themselves. No interaction with any of the other people. It was just like literally, I need you to fill 13 minutes for me. That's Mm -hmm. and That wasn't the direction, but that's what they wound up doing. So they were given... Total autonomy to do whatever they wanted to do with it. They had to still come down, fly down a couple times and show them some animation stills, some some cells and some of the artwork, which they did and presented to Lucas and he liked what they were doing. And um, and yeah, it's obvious why that's the best part of the special is because it's the original voices. It's really their characters that are in the cartoon um, and they were left alone with just a good story that didn't need to be morphed into a into a variety show.
2: Hey, it's the only part of the holiday special that is featured on the Empire Strikes Back bonus features of the Blu-rays.
1: Mm-hmm. Correct. Yep. D- and does that make it canon? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and all that all that is is confusing because there's still all these references when you look at. You know, Boba Fett, you know, the, was created by the special. You know, that was created in the special. And that whole look is is totally mimicked right off that. Kashyyyk, the, the treehouse, is totally taken into, uh, is it episode three? I think it's episode three yeah. where they go to Kashyyyk. Or... Yeah, right. yeah. 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 It's amazing. The exact same artwork. So, you know, it's just so, the whole thing is just so frustrating because it, it's so. There's, a, there's one woman who, um, well, I'll just say she, she was a script supervisor, script supervisor that I reached out to way early on because I knew the script supervisor would have great stories because there were so many different versions of the script. And she started talking to me, and then all of a sudden she just went nuts and just started, like, yelling at me. and, and I'm not going to – you're not going to get me to talk about this. This is – You know, He ran out the back door and left us hanging, and then he didn't want to put his name on it, you know? And I have to say, there's something, I don't know if it's like a Jewish law or what, something in me just, and I think she had the same feeling, like, the fact that he demanded his name get taken off it. I mean, there's just something extra messed up about that. Like, that's so uncool. And... You know, I don't know if you guys have seen the Robot Chicken episode by chance about the holiday special. Yes. Have you seen that? Yes. Oh, and yeah. yeah. it's Lucas, and it's actually Lucas who did a, a guest spot there, and he's animated, but in the audio, he says uh, he's talking to a therapist and he's saying, uh, I It all started when I gave, uh, I thought I could do a musical, a holiday special. Uh, and uh, it turned out so bad. And he kind of said like, and he said in a lot of interviews since every now and then I'll like, say, yeah, they, I didn't know what they were doing. They just kind of did something else and whatever. This guy ran out the back door. That's what he did. I mean, he was really, really busy. He was in the busiest time of his life by far, forgetting about the special. But for him to take his name off it, I try to have a lot of sympathy for him, man. But that's just something that's so deflating to everyone else on your project. I mean, all those people that worked on that project, including the huge animation team in Toronto, here he's guiding this whole thing, and he doesn't even want his name on it. He doesn't take my name off it. I mean, it's one thing to say, I'm not going to release it on video, I'm not going to repeat it, but to say, take my name off it. I mean, I don't know. I don't know why that just just has a, a personal... Extra level of unnecessary right. cruelty.
2: Now, with Disney Plus being as popular as it is, uh, and there has been a almost a, a small fan movement to get the Star Wars holiday special on Disney Plus. What's your opinion about that? That push or that request? Do you think it'll ever happen? Do you think Disney will honor the the burial or trying to bury it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Find a decent copy of it. That's a great line.
1: They honor the uh, they honor the burial of it. That's exactly yeah, because that's exactly what it is. Um, I personally don't think um, you know the the relationship there is. Even though Lucasfilm was sold to Disney, and there's still a little back and forth about who technically owns the Star Wars Holiday Special. It's kind of up for still not a hundred percent. The production company feels that they might own it. CBS feels like they own it, possibly. 20th Century Fox and, of course, Lucasfilm. So there's – and now Disney. So because it's not – it just was not one of those items that was listed in the press release when they sold Lucasfilm. They mentioned a lot of the specific properties, but they didn't mention this. Um, There is still um, a relationship between Lucasfilm, between Disney and Lucas. For the films. I mean, they're not going to just start making decisions willy nilly without Lucas's involvement. I mean, even if they wanted to, they need Lucas. They they still are, are opening up, you know, Star Wars Adventure Lands in, in Tokyo and all their Disney attractions and stuff. They're not going to upset him, not for something like. For one project, you know, like the Star Wars holiday special. I mean, I, I just don't see them. Um, if he really, really wants to be, you know, harsh about it, I don't see why Disney would would risk that because they still need him um, in the project. I mean, they they want him still supporting. They want him to show up at all those. Star Wars Adventure Lands that they're going to have now at every Disneyland. I mean, that's going to be, de- you know, years. He'll be in his wheelchair. He'll still be showing up at those things yeah. with his lightsaber and waving them on. So I think it's something that Lucas needs to get past. Unless you don't, you know, it's really not a Disney. Just, I don't think it's a Disney thing. I, don't, I can't imagine them doing that because um, uh, I know he's you know, just has this attitude about it, which is a shame. Paul McCartney was, I remember Paul McCartney was interviewed by Robert Hilburn. I don't know if you remember Robert Hilburn. He had this awful, he used to review music for the times and he had this goofy show like on it, like the, the Byron Allen hours. Like, yeah, it. yeah, yeah. At 11, 12 o'clock midnight Saturday, you know, whatever's against Saturday night live or something on channel two. Anyway, Hilburn had this show and he was asking him, he asked him this really stupid question. It was like, So, I don't know if you guys are McCartney fans, but he's like, you know, so you release McCartney and Band on the Run and then Venus and Mars and then then you release Back to the Egg. What's with that? And it was such a rude thing to say to someone, like, that your most recent album sucks. I mean, that's basically what he's saying. But McCartney said something so, I thought was so interesting. He said, you know, I'm a big fan of Picasso and I like all of Picasso's work, his good stuff and his bad stuff. And if you and he says, I'm not likening myself to Picasso, but if you're a big fan of an artist, you're gonna like everything that they that they put. You're gonna want to explore it. And I think that's what I personally think that's what Lucas needs to kind of come to grips with. That, you know, you see if he wouldn't have futzed with his with his movies and do done all that stuff there wouldn't be this negative thing with him. He would have just been right, this, right. Brilliant, yeah. but see now, because he did all that. Now the holiday special becomes something that, Oh, he's controlling that too. And, you know,
2: so do um, you, th- in your opinion, do you think because of his experiences with the holiday special is what led him to eventually redo the and make all those tweaks to the original trilogy?
1: Boy, I never thought of that. I never thought of that.
2: Um, I never thought of that until our conversation tonight. That's why yeah, I asked I mean, the question.
1: I mean, he's th- there is this this tinkerer. I mean, he you know he redid thx. You know, eleven thirty eight. Yeah. Then he did it as a regular film. Then he re redid it as a um, as a um, director's cut. As a director's cut. Um, but yeah, I don't know. You know, it reminds me. Can I tell you about? Do you know about Charles Lippincott? No. Charles Lippincott is the most underrated person in the whole Star Wars success thing. And he's very involved in the special, very involved in how it happened. And I'll, I'll try to give you the reader's digest on him. He is a fascinating person. He, in 19... Know, see here. I'll take him right off my notes here. So he is working... He came from USC with Lucas. Okay. And he was kind of like a marketing guy. He wanted to get into marketing. So... He's befriending Gary Kurtz, the producer of Star Wars, and all these people. They all came out of USC. And Charles Lippincott is working at... Lucas has just done American Graffiti, and uh, they're at Universal, where where it was shot, where it was filmed. And he sees Lippincott, who's working on Family Plot as a publicist, and he tells about this science fiction project. He goes, I'd love to do it. I I, I, I would love to do it. And he's, like, literally waiting... He's wanting to get off of a working for Hitchcock. Think about that at the time. Oh, frame. wow. Work on on the, So he reads the script over the weekend. He loves it. And he's like, I would love to do and work for you. So Lucas hires him. He gets Fox to hire him at his in his rate, uh, at, at Fox's expense, to work exclusively on Star Wars after a lot of fighting. Lippincott does some amazing things that lead to the success of Star Wars. Lippincott, Lippincott, uh... He does a deal with Marvel books, yep. with Marvel comics. He makes the deal to where three comic books are going to come out before the movie's even released, which is amazing that he was able yep. to get Stanley to do that. He gets Valentine wow. to, to write a novel of the, of the script yeah. and have that come out like six months before, maybe even a year before Star Wars comes out. The whole success of Star Wars was the word of mouth. Was, was, that's how it made money. Was, it was after two, three weeks, people were coming back with all their friends. Yep, right. And, but you wouldn't have had the word of mouth if you didn't have anyone in the seats because there was no stars in this, and this was an unproven genre. Mm, so you right, really so. had like everything going against it. There was no way, no reason why this movie would last in the theaters for a week or two. Mm-hmm. No way. So really the goal for Lippincott was like, I know this film is great. I need to get people to come to sit in the theater for two weeks. I need to guarantee there's people going to be people there for just a week or two. That's all I got to do. So that's why he created all of this pre-publicity. He created, um, then he started, uh, uh, uh he did, he did that and, um, there's a oh, and then he did the merchandising deal. that's yeah. that's his deal with Kenner. So he right. gets all of this stuff done that, that that no one saw coming. no one saw working on a merchandising deal. never been done in films except for Planet of the Apes or something. never been done. He does all this stuff and then he gets he starts getting him into television. So he has this this very influential meeting. Uh, I think it's in so the movie come Star Wars comes out in may 77. Yep. So in like July, Warner Brothers invites them over to talk about re-releasing THX 1138. They're saying, we don't want to release it right now because Star Wars is on it. It's going to go nuts. I don't want it to, to compete with Star Wars. And the, and the executive says, no one can remember who this guy was. But the executive tells Lippincott and Lucas, this movie is not going to last through September. This is not a, this is, that's the way these summer hits go. They they die at, at Labor Day. So the obsession leaving this audience, because this office, because Lucas was so pissed off that Warners had pulled out like six minutes of the film a week before it came out. I don't know if you guys know that, but that is one of the factors that made him obsessed about controlling things is because Warners had cut six minutes of oh, that wow. film. Oh, before it came to the theater. So he's already pissed oh, off at them. Now he tells them that his huge hit movie, that's thats jet, it's, it's literally targeted to be the biggest movie of all time. He's saying it's going to be out of the theaters by September. So the three of them make a pact that whatever they have to do to keep the movies in the theaters, mm-hmm. we're going to do. And then they made the deal with the Donnie and Marie show, Richard Pryor show, the Bob Hope special. And all those specials were produced within the next month or two. And every time those those specials came on, the film receipts spiked, and that's what made him much more a uh, television much more appealing to him, which led him to doing the Star Wars special. Okay, which was Lippincott doing this entire thing. Lippincott gets fired after this in the middle of the special, possibly because of what's happening to the special. I don't know. I've never really got a good story on that one. But the terrible thing, <laughs> Lippincott left. Lippincott, the success to, to Star Wars is the number two person successful for that is Lippincott. I mean, clearly, with all the money mm. he got, and he used to. He died very poor. He died about a month and a half ago, very poor. And um, I mean, not poor, but I mean, he was st- he was selling you know cells and collectibles you know off his eBay page and his Facebook page and. It was very sad. And he had, I guess he had told his story that, you know, Lucas had fired him and, you know, he never made the money that he was supposed to make. And I guess somewhere like a couple of years ago, he made a statement on Facebook that he's come to grips with George Lucas. And he feels that he found out that George had actually tried to get more money from Kenner and Fox for him from the proceeds of the of the of the toys. So he doesn't hold a grudge against him anymore. And that was so sad because at that point you're realizing he doesn't believe this. He's just trying to, to even to kind of forgive him and have an even playing field because he doesn't want to have this whole be the bad guy who's bitching about Lucas. If Lucas wanted to give him more money, he didn't have to go to Kenner right. to get him some money. He could have freaking written him a check, $20 billion in in toy sales. I mean, yep. holy mackerel. And this guy, so he's kind of the... Uh, He's kind of the secret the secret guy behind the scenes of this of a lot of the, the stuff that we're dealing with, which is basically Lucas' wow. adventures in primetime television. Wow. Huh. Very, wow. very sad story, but he's important uh, to the thing.
2: But amazing at the same time. Yeah.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. And no one had ever publicized a movie before that. I mean, you look at it now, it's all done through social media and everything else like yep. that. He was going to comic book conventions right. and science fiction conventions and bringing props along and bringing Mark Hamill with them. And we have some videotape of him with mm-hmm. Mark Hamill at a convention, answering questions about these, this crazy new movie they were working on. And mm-hmm. so I mean, he was trying to get those people to come for two weeks. And he did that and it was very, never very ignored, very ignored.
2: Mm-hmm. So Ken, uh, Ken, Derek, any final questions?
0: So we know you're in the process of making the film and stuff, and with all this stuff, no, nothing's getting released anyway, but how far along are you? I mean, are you getting ready to wrap this up soon, or are you still in the middle of filming interviews, or how, where are we at on this?
1: We shot uh, interviews with most of the writers, the producers. We shot about a dozen interviews. We shot them in October. Then we cut together a, a a really great sizzle reel guy cut our – and then this guy Adam Goldberg from the Goldbergs got involved in the project. Oh, and yeah. now his agent at William Morris in February was talking and trying to get us to, you know, put a deck together and our sizzle reel and get ready to pitch this. And then COVID happened. So I'm in a really tough yeah. position because I'm kind of like – I mean, I definitely turned turned up Star Wars about a month ago. But I had just taken a break from the whole thing. Um, cause it's disrespectful obviously to, you know, all these other people. I don't want to be like knocking on people's doors. Hey, can you talk about the, uh, you know, the, the Jabba's, uh, you know, from star Wars or <laughs> well, people are right, dying, right. you know, by tens of thousands. So I've been trying to be respectful about it, but it's, um, now it's like, no, there's nothing to do. I'm just trying to get... Uh, well, I mean, I was. it gives me a lot more dead time to really try to find the really more unique people, like some people in the cantina scene I found, and they're really very interesting. And, and uh, again, all these acrobats and all the kind of extras and the imperial guards, especially, like, the goofy ones that are, like, yeah. watching some Starship and all that stuff. Yeah. You know, they're, those stories must be amazing. I mean, they're, they're just... Mm, you know they they got the hard Carney and they they're on set for three weeks you know one of the one of the acrobats told me this really funny thing she said that she did that and she got paid like so little and then she never heard of it again and she was telling me like and then like 10 15 years ago people are sending me you know like i'm the great Zorback, (laughs) and that star wars has listed me in their in their encyclopedia (laughs) it's like this was such an ad hoc thing she was just doing acrobats on a green screen in a studio. That's all she did. She had no connection with Star Wars at all. And she, I don't think she realized she was even working on a Star Wars project. Uh, but anyway, so uh, that's where, that's where I'm right now I'm just trying to set up and see, kind of figure out our remaining people we have – what their attitude is about, um, you know, doing interviews after COVID and, and, you know, what their comfort level is and trying to gather, you know, is it uh, where would we do interviews and, you know, to make people feel comfortable. I don't want to go into people's homes. And so that's kind of where we're at. The one thing I definitely do not want to do um, is do interviews and have it look like it's COVID time. Like, I don't want that... Like a couple, right, of, yeah. just do it and we'll be six feet apart. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want this. We're already halfway done. If we had just started and this was a COVID, then it would be okay. Well, this was shot at a COVID. So that's, that's why it looks like this, but I think we can still, still shoot it. Um, the problem is, is as you know, it's a 42 year old show yeah. and most people um, are passed away and you know, Charles Lippincott died five six weeks ago and these people are Diane Carroll passed away in October you know so all these people are slowly passing away and that's really the pressure is I hate to say that it sounds so terrible but yeah to get them Mm -hmm to get them while they're together and they even yeah. remember, you know? Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. Where can people find you online or find out more about this project? Who were going to ask me that? Darn it.
1: <laughs> well, we can give you more plugs. No, because I've done a couple of these and I even did one on, on KFI. Oh, you don't know the KFI. A guy named Mo Kelly in LA. And he asked me that and I told my partner, I said, You need to have some kind of social media channel or something because I – but we first thought, well, we're not going to be, you know, this is not a project we need to really um, um, kickstart. You know, I think it's, there's definitely interest, and people know it's got an established audience already. It's an interesting format. Before they even find out, really, what a decent job I think we're doing on it, so it's very sellable. I just, I just don't have one. I'm, okay. But I'm going to get back to you. I'm just going to, I'm going to launch something on on Facebook. <laughs> nah, problem. Just to problem. Something done. Something because yeah, it is very important to get. That's why I love when I get calls like this because I love getting into this world. This is our world, and I really want to be able to oh, um to right. make yeah. sure that they yeah. know this project. So thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's our pleasure.
2: We, we definitely we definitely want to keep updated with yeah it too, so we know yeah. what's going on. Yeah, as sure. As you get more interesting stories, feel free to come back on and tell us what you what you've got.
1: I feel like I was nonstop, so. No, it was perfect. Oh, It was yeah. perfect. It's all it's all about you. It's
2: all about <laughs> yeah. the project. No, well, and we had practice. We also had epic. practice with Bruce because Bruce was nonstop <laughs> as well. So like, yeah. okay, we'll just hear the stories. I mean, it's it's a project that you know, the Star Wars holiday special is something that we like, and you know, even now with that half hour in the beginning, uh, it's it's still something fun to watch and uh, well, and, will, and all the stories behind it.
1: I will say that when I've talked to some people about this, they go, Oh, so you're just gonna do a thing about how bad it is and everything and I'm like, No, man, like oh, I'll give you one quick little anecdote before we go. Sure. Is that okay? Are you checking okay. yeah. out? Oh, he wiped his face, that means you're tired. That means you're tired. No, I, I- <laughs> I've been outside all day today wearing a mask. So I'm trying to during COVID, during COVID time. He wiped his face. I saw it. He did it twice. <laughs> um, so someone asked, someone asked me. Um, it, this KFI guy said, um, "What's something that's really great about the special? What's something that is good about it?" And I'm like, "Come on, man. That's that's if you cut this up into segments, you know, you could find good things about it. Just the fact that it's all together and you don't understand what it is. It's just." It's just thrown together, and I said right off the bat, I said I think the B. Arthur Cantina scene is really sweet. Yeah, it's not as great as it is in the friggin' ten million dollar film that was probably what eighty million dollars of today's money. I mean, you know, that was a that took a lot of time. I mean, they shot that in friggin' two days or something in a in a studio in in with B. Arthur. I mean, you know, it was not it was totally different. But I love that song, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people that wrote that song were a couple called Bob and the Welches, uh, Ken and Mitzi Welch. So Ken and Mitzi Welch um, has passed on. Ken was still alive about a year and a half ago. And I reached out to him and I he already said he'd do an interview, but he was kind of too old. And I, I really wanted to find out who his kids were because I thought... He shouldn't be answering the phone and saying yes to interviews, especially to something like this. So, <laughs> I, I I was very apprehensive about putting him in a bad. I mean, seriously, I'd be really pissed off if someone interviewed my dad, you know, without my permission, and just especially about something so, you know, negative and everything like that. So, right. so I left a message with his daughter. I just found out who his daughter's name was, and I don't know how. I, I think it was his home phone. And like a couple days later I get a phone call back from his daughter who tells me I'm so sorry he just died. Oh, I'm so sorry. She goes, but you know, I'm willing to help you with anything you want. She goes, but you know, I'm I'm in the studio this week and I'm recording and da, da, da. and I'm thinking to myself, "Oh, brother, another cuz I'm in Los I'm in LA, like another friggin' writer, producer, whatever, just yeah, whatever. You got your audition." Go she, she just and I just I'm so sick of hearing it. So she's doing this whole thing to me about how she's in the studio next week and she doesn't know what she could do. She's in rehearsal and, you know, long days. And so I Google her and find out that she is busy. All right. She is a country music singer and she is performing at the Oscars. Because <laughs> she nominated for best original song. And if you remember them, you probably, I don't know if you would, but it's the, it's the, um, uh, it's the Cone brothers film. The one with uh, Tom Waits in it, where it's about the Cowboys or something. And the song was something. Oh, about, oh, yeah, about angel wings or something like that. Yeah, and her, yeah. the song. They were in these like cowboy nudie outfits, those old '60s nudie. Yeah, cowboys. yeah. <laughs> and that's what they were doing. So I'm trying to get her to, um, trying to get her to cover the song "Goodbye," but not "Goodnight," but not "Goodbye," because I said to her. That is such a, it's so sentimental, it's so overly saccharine but there's something really sweet about that. There's a line in there that's so hokey, but it's so real, and it's so surprisingly stark and and out there, where the people are leaving the bar, and she feels bad because they're going off, they're probably homeless, and you know, of course I'm reading too much into this, but you know, I, I already have a story about all these people that are leaving, but She's saying goodbye to them, and at one point she says, she says to one guy, Oh, you're such a dear friend. And the music kind of stops in silence and silences. she goes, You're such a dear friend. And then the next guy comes over and goes, and he goes, she goes to him and she goes, Is that a tear friend? <laughs> oh. So that is so bad. That is so bad. And it turns out the bodyguard in the bar is the is the is Mala. So the bodyguard, there's a bodyguard in the in the campaign right, right, scene. Right, right, right. That is Mala, who plays Chewbacca's wife, right. He's actually a man. Oh, wow. cool. Oh, he's also oh. he's also the second pair of hands in the Julia Child bit. Oh, the little I gave you today. Hey, look at that. That's awesome. Oh. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh. Well, thank
2: you for joining us. Please stay in touch. With us and uh, and come back on when, as as things progress, we'd love absolutely. to have you on. Definitely,
1: absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so absolutely. much, guys. It was our pleasure. Give the evacuation code signal. All right,
2: cut the chatter. Jax, I can hold it. Pull up. No, I'm all right. I've right. ah! placed information vital to the survival of the rebellion into the memory systems of the R2 unit.
1: I lost our (laughs) two!
2: Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise.